Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. One of the metrics among the daily release of COVID-19 data captures the supply of health care. It's not called supply in the statistics. Instead, the state's top hospital regulator calls it available hospital bed capacity. This weekend, about 40 percent of the hospital beds throughout the state were empty, meaning they're available for patients, presumably ready for a surge of coronavirus patients. In South Florida, supply runs from about a third of the beds at hospitals in Broward County to 43 percent empty beds in Palm Beach County. About a third of intensive care unit beds are available in South Florida, according to the Agency for Healthcare Administration. While the empty beds represent a cushion to handle an increase in COVID-19 hospitalizations, they also represent a drop in the business of healthcare. One South Florida hospital CEO, who you will hear from later on in this program, calls it a perfect storm for their business. An increase in costs for staff training and personal protection equipment to prepare for the worst of COVID-19, and abiding by the state-mandated prohibition on elective surgeries to free up beds. The good news on public health is the demand surge from the virus has not materialized for hospitals here. The practical downside is the missing millions of dollars from other procedures that would normally be filling that supply. We are now running at a rate of $25 million a month loss. This is Carlos Magoya, the CEO at Jackson Health System in Miami. For the month of April and probably May. The stoppage of elective surgery obviously has a lot to do with that. Magoya himself was diagnosed with COVID-19. When we spoke with him last week, he said he was feeling great. Normally, Jackson's operating rooms and outpatient surgery centers would be busy doing about 2,500 procedures a month. But non-essential surgeries have been shut down since March 20th under an executive order from Governor Ron DeSantis. The ban is due to expire next week, and it may be among the first business restrictions lifted. This is the governor last week after hospital and doctor groups wrote a letter asking to be allowed to restart elective surgeries. That absolutely has to happen. Um, I can't tell you when it's going to happen, but but it's something I'm committed to getting done. The procedures are an important part of the hospital business. That can represent about 60 to 70 percent of a hospital's volume. Dr. Amit Rastogi is the CEO of Jupiter Medical Center in Palm Beach County. You know, I think it's going to you know, cost us somewhere between uh, 5 to $10 million a month with regards to, to loss from a, from a cash flow standpoint. His medical center did $282 million in patient revenue last year. Two weeks ago, it announced it was furloughing 50 administrative workers, cutting pay for senior leadership team members by 10 to 20 percent, and Ristogi himself was cutting his salary by 30 percent. He doesn't think there will be a rush for surgeries when the ban is eventually lifted. Initially, a lot of the medical community had thought that once the executive order is lifted, um, you know, and things are, are safe to proceed, the volume is going to come back immediately. What we're finding, and this is not just in healthcare, but if you look at across industries, many of the polls are showing that even once restaurants are open or once the airlines are flying all the time, a vast majority of the people are afraid to still um, you know, visit any of those institutions. And I think in healthcare, that's going to be the, a similar uh, decision-making uh, you know, standpoint, that what's going to happen is folks are slowly going to get back into getting their procedures done. Just how Florida hospitals could restart a return to normal business is not clear. It may not be as simple as lifting the ban, especially in South Florida, which has a majority of the COVID-19 infections in the state. Aurelio Fernandez is the CEO at Broward Memorial Healthcare System. We're being very selective. We're not proposing to do, for example, hernia repairs or bariatric surgeries. As you open up the 
services in the hospital, you don't want to utilize your patient beds in the event of a surge. It could be a phased reopening or limited reopening or restricted restart of some procedures at some locations. Whatever you do, you've got to make sure that you don't add additional stresses to your hospitals and to your capabilities. Bo Bollinger is the chief operating officer at Baptist Health South Florida. The health system runs 11 hospitals spread throughout Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, and Monroe counties with over 2,500 beds combined. About 40% of its beds are empty across its facilities. I'm sure that there is a way that we can go back to doing appropriate uh, work for people in a very, very safe way. We've got a number of freestanding outpatient diagnostic and ambulatory surgery centers, and those would be the ideal places to um, begin to see how we might uh, get back to taking care of patients. Patients, public health, and revenue is the delicate balance hospitals face. Dr. Ristogi again with the Jupiter Medical Center. It's going to be very important, both from the business and the clinical standpoint. During this time, there's folks who needed surgeries that they have put off. So, you know, for them to be able to come in and and take care of those problems is going to be you know, incredibly important. Certainly for us, from a business sustainability standpoint, that revenue is going to be important for us to bring back our staff, which, as you know, then has a ripple effect on other parts of the economy, for us to be able to move forward, both from a clinical and a business standpoint, after May 9th, uh, I believe is going to be incredibly important. Still to come, hoping for more federal stimulus money to avoid layoffs at Jackson Health System. If some of those payments come to fruition here on a quick basis, it should be able to help us be, uh, keep all those people employed. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening and supporting public radio. When we spoke with Jackson Health CEO Carlos Magoya last week, he said he was feeling great. It had been about a month since he tested positive for COVID-19. As for the financial health of Jackson, it's losing $25 million a month. But Magoya is confident the public hospital system has enough cash on hand and is hoping for more federal stimulus money to see through the higher expenses of preparing for coronavirus and sharp drop in revenue because of the moratorium on elective surgeries. For hospital revenues have actually been very devastating. And our revenues actually since the beginning of March have dropped by 40%. In our case, that would mean patient revenues about uh, 450, almost $500 million a year if you you were to analyze that number. So what does that mean for the months ahead for services that Jackson can provide? Well, uh, obviously, we have our working capital, and uh, and we are also working in opportunities on cash. And uh, uh, um, they've uh, been able to get some advance payments on some of the Medicare payments, and of course, we have a line of credit and so forth. So, from a cash perspective, uh, we continue to do everything we can to keep not only the payroll but also maintain the vendors up to uh, paid and everything else. So that that's not the challenge. The challenge is going to be is how we come back from these kind of losses. And all the federal government talks about um, all these uh, helps that they're trying to do places like Jackson. For example, the first tranche that was paid was paid on a, on a formula based on uh, fee simple, fee, uh, direct payment for uh, Medicare. And the CMS for years have been trying to get everybody to go to Medicare Advantage, which is a managed care payment, which is by HMOs. Uh, and Miami-Dade County uh, is approximately 70% of the population is on uh, on that kind of environment, on, on management, Medicare. 
by doing that, we actually did not get a good representation of the amount of payment. So we only got $60 million when typically hospitals like our size would have gotten 40 or $50 million. Yeah, let me ask you about the staffing here because you announced plans to begin cutting up to 1,100 jobs that would have begun on May 1st, about 10% of the workforce, then you canceled those plans indefinitely. Are they just on the shelf? Are workforce reduction plans completely off the table now for Jackson? I wouldn't say they're completely off the table, but obviously we're first waiting to see what we can get from the federal government. If some of those payments come to fruition here on a, on a, on a, on a, quick, a quick basis, it should be able to help us be, keep all those people employed. What's the timeline that you're operating under there, Carlos, in the next 30 days, 90 days? Uh, not even. Probably on a week-to-week basis, we've probably got another three to four weeks before I can make a decision one way or the other. But we feel we feel comfortable from a conversation we've been getting from our leaders uh, in, in Congress that uh, we should be able to get uh, some information about that within the next couple of weeks. So we're, hope, we're hoping for the best. In order for you as the CEO of Jackson not to make any reductions to the labor force, what kind of confidence do you need and what kind of dollars do you need to see from the federal government? Well, confidence is more confirmation yeah, okay. of the amount. You want to see okay. the money coming in then. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I want to be able to know that I'm getting the money. And how much? Besides the how much is, is when. So we, I would say if we get that money in the next uh, 60 to 90 days, I'm, I'm good with that. But how much do you need to see in the next 60 to 90 Minimally, days? Minimally, in order for me to not do any kind of furloughs or anything, I need minimum between 25 and $40 million at the level for Jackson to be able to see those kinds of things to help us with that. In addition to what you've already received, the $16 million, is that right? That is correct. That is correct. And that will not cover all our losses, but that will help us at least. Uh, mitigate any kind of reduction of forces for the time being and salary reductions and things of that nature that we would have to do. So if you're able to get that level of funding from the federal government, is that coupled with lifting of the ban on elected surgeries to see that revenue come back? The other conversations that we're having here at the state, of course, is uh, how do we lift uh, uh, the banning of uh, elective surgeries? And what's happened is some of those elective surgeries are now becoming urgent surgeries. Uh, many uh, uh, tumors, uh, cancerous tumors, uh, open heart surgeries, back surgeries, uh, all, all kinds of different surgeries that have been delayed for now between four and six weeks have become urgent. So we're at least asking the governor before even opening up all the elective surgeries to at least come up with a, uh, an urgent uh, opportunity and not just the emergent surgeries um, so that we can help some of those patients. And that would also help us a little bit. If we if we see the opening of surgeries, uh, all the electives, so I, by the first or second week of May, uh, and of course that you know it's not like uh, opening um, uh, uh, the sink here and letting the water come out, uh, the spigot come out at one time. Uh, I think, and we start seeing more of a level thing in June. I think we'd, we'd be in, in fairly decent shape, but uh, at this point, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. All this territory is actually very new to everyone. Uh, we've never seen anything of this of this magnitude. And, in, uh, in our country. So that combination of federal dollars coming in uh, in the next 60 or 90 days with the lifting of the prohibition, the state prohibition on elective surgeries, those are the two kind of tent poles in order to hold up the finances for Jackson through the end of the year? Absolutely. The, fed- the federal assistance would only be on a temporary basis. That, uh, and the only way that we can withstand something on a long term is to be able to get our revenues back up in, 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 in place. And even with that revenues, I mean, going forward, 
our expenses are going to be higher. We're going to have to have a higher level of uh, protective equipment for everybody because we're going to have some percentage of COVID patients at all times. And we need to make sure that we're not only protecting our patients from infection, but protecting our our workforce from infection as well. So everybody's working in a very anxious and, and kind of a nervous environment at this point. Indeed. There's another piece of this uh, in terms of revenue makeup, and that's prices for uh, insured patients or self-paid patients to uh, to address prices. Have you looked at raising prices when business returns to whatever the new normal is going to be? Well, here's the thing, Tom. We are a public hospital, right? and we deal with a lot of people that can't afford insurance. Right. So our, we're normally we were running 15% of our uh, of our payer mix being people that didn't have insurance were much much higher than right than that right now so my issue is not so much raising prices my issue is so much is getting insured patients that can come in the door and pay for their own uh fair uh, prices so i'm not even looking at raising prices at this point i'm looking at just how to how to just be able to give some some revenue back in the door as a public hospital it's the safety net hospital funding comes from a lot of different sources, including sales tax. And we know that with the essential working that's happening, work from home and stay at home orders, you know, retail sales and sales taxes, the lack of tourists, that's got to take a hit as well. What's that contribution to the uh, financial picture? So obviously that's another uh, great point. We believe that we will have minimally between a 15 and 20% reduction of sales tax revenues, uh, which is probably another impact to us on an annual basis. Uh, we believe for this year alone, um, we will probably have an impact of around another $20, 25000000 million reduction in the sales tax revenues that Jackson receives from the half-penny sales tax for trauma and, and, and things of that of that kind, so that is also a, another issue because you're right. Uh, automobile, not not just uh, tourism, but automobile sales are down. All, all large appliances are down. So those kinds of things are actually have a, a real negative effect to sales taxes. So uh, we we do have some challenges ahead of us. And uh, so yes, with the reduction of of, uh, of revenues including sales tax, and of course, the increase in these expenses uh, make it an awful challenging time at this point. So how deep is the red ink now projected to be for this year for Jackson? Um, that's the $64 question. Uh, <laughs> Only $64, Carlos, yeah. huh? <laughs> well, it, it used to be a million dollars, but we're, we're settling for a lot less money nowadays. Okay. Uh, but seriously, uh, uh, we, uh, we really don't know. We think that even with the help and everything else, uh, that we got at this point, we're probably talking about a loss in the 50 to $70 million range, uh, which is uh, with the fact that we're a public hospital, we run on very small operating margins. That, that's a, a big loss for us. And do you have the cash resources in order to make that up for the year? That part we do. That part we do. Uh, we just cannot afford to have those kind of losses uh, year after year. I feel comfortable that we will, long-term, providing that we get through this uh, virus here in a reasonable period of time, that we'll be able to survive this uh, and, and be the strong Jackson that we have been. Speaking last week with Jackson Health System CEO Carlos Magoya. Now, still to come, how the largest healthcare operator in South Florida is weathering the financial hit from COVID-19. We have always known that we might have to be ready for some very bad situations that came to us. We always thought the bad situation would be a major hurricane. This is quite a different type of disaster.
This is the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening to WLRN and for supporting public radio. Healthcare is big business in South Florida. About one in seven people in the region with a job before COVID-19 were working in healthcare, according to government data from late last year. And the largest healthcare employer is Baptist Health South Florida. It runs 11 hospitals from the Keys to Boca Raton and more than two dozen urgent care centers. Bo Bollinger is the chief operating officer of Baptist Health South Florida. We were expecting a much greater surge of patients. Um, getting ready for the surge was um, required a complete change in the way we look at things and the way we do business. And we fully embraced that. We wanted to be as ready as possible. And what we have seen is we've seen a increase in the number of cases that seems to have plateaued and slightly decreasing at this point in time but a a decline in the number of people that come in to the emergency departments and urgent care centers. And of course, following the state order, we've canceled the elective surgeries. So it's almost a perfect storm business-wise to the hospitals in the state of Florida that you don't have a huge amount of COVID patients and you also don't have um, all of the extra work that you would have during normal business times. On the good side, you're not seeing the COVID patients uh, rush through and and really strain the system. But in preparation for that, as you mentioned, you really uh, eliminated a lot of the kind of normal business of the hospital in order to prepare. So on the financial side, what does that look like for March and April for Baptist? For the month of March, we uh, experienced a $70 million loss, and we don't know yet uh, about April or May, um, but we are hopeful now that we have uh, plateaued and starting to decline, um, there will be a point in which um, we feel comfortable and patients, consumers, and doctors feel comfortable with people um, returning Uh, for necessary and important work that needs to be done. Bo, for that $70 million loss in March, could you tease out some details? How much of that was additional expense in the run-up and preparation for the potential demand for COVID-19 patients? And how much of that was the drop-off in business because of the prohibition of elective surgeries and then also just other type of business coming through the doors. It just didn't because of the stay-at-home orders and, and other reasons. Well, uh, Tom, it's, uh, it's a combination of factors. Um, let's just talk about um, some of the broad buckets that, uh, that go into this. Uh, we had a tremendous increase in expense related to acquiring um, protective equipment for all of the employees and for the patients. We constructed several tent facilities at each one of our entities in order to meet the demand. You know, you have to treat every patient as if they have COVID. Uh, We have a really robust telehealth uh, platform called Care on Demand, and we've offered uh, that for free to people in the community. We have maintained the the same staffing levels as we would normally have. So we have continued to uh, pay our people. You know, all of those things, you know, combined when you have a precipitous drop uh, in revenue, hospitals survive 
on the elective work that we do. And, uh, you know, we're just not having any of that right now. Some of your colleagues in Dade County have shared numbers like around 40% down in revenue or uh, in the low 40% range drop in, in uh, Broward County and Palm Beach County. Is it in that range? Yeah, it would it would certainly be in, in that range. And the wherewithal for Baptist uh, business to weather this uh, $70 million deficit in operating performance in um, in the month of March. And as you're looking at something, you know, unknown for April and May, uh, there was net income positive about a half a billion dollars in your fiscal year 2019. So if you if you look at those financials, there's there's some there's some dry powder, so to speak. So you're able to weather this. Is that a fair reading? Baptist Health South Florida is a uh, a very strong not-for-profit uh, system, you know, here. And uh, we have always known that we might have to be ready for some very bad situations that came to us. We always kind of thought the bad situation would be a major hurricane hitting South Florida. This is quite a different type of disaster. So we have significant financial reserves, and that's the way that we like to manage the business. We've tried to make very um, thoughtful considerations in the past about spending money and and having uh, adequate days cash on hand so that we can weather whatever is going to come through. We're very financially strong heading into this crisis. We're going to have to evaluate the impact of our operating losses and how we can defer spending on some new capital projects, other decisions about things, tough decisions are going to be have to have to be made going forward. And of course, we're also going to have to see, you know, how quickly uh, Florida and South Florida decides to get back to taking care of patients and getting some of these urgent and emergent cases taken care of. Baptist developed its own COVID-19 test. Has that had any kind of material impact on either your expenses in a positive way so that you're handling your own lab tests and not going outside of the Baptist network? Uh, no, not necessarily. Uh, you know, the the expense for testing is really not that great, nor is our capability as high as it needs to be. So we're using a wide variety of testing alternatives in order to get the, the tests done uh, that we need to have done. It just has allowed us to test our hospitalized patients more quickly. And that's really important to know so that caregivers know what they're dealing with. Has there been any impact on the workforce at Baptist? You mentioned that uh, you've uh, kept everybody paid. Uh, any salary reductions or hour reductions or considerations as you're seen through the uncertainty? Well, not at this time, but we do have 8,000 people working remotely. We are just going to have to see how quickly uh, we can begin to resume some semblance of getting back to the new normal operations. I think everyone realizes that we see a glimpse into the future and that there is going to be a new normal and we're going to have to work uh, differently. And it might be that a lot more people can work from home. 
and we need to take steps in order to enable that. And so we're taking uh, a very cautious uh, approach going forward, trying to continue to stay connected to our people and support our people while we see what the future holds in terms of trying to get back to normalcy. Does that extend to the number of people that Baptist employs, for instance, as you're as you're looking through this period? Not at this time. You know, we, we're we're not making uh, any decisions at this time about headcount or uh, number of people. What, what we're trying to do is we're trying to support the people that we've got to properly utilize them and to look uh, toward the future about how are we going to redeploy in perhaps the most efficient way. The federal stimulus plans have provided for some money for hospitals. Uh, has Baptist received any of the federal stimulus dollars? Uh, we have. Uh, a, short, a short time ago, we received some, and we're very hopeful that we're going to receive uh, more. You know, Miami-Dade County is uh, heavily Medicare Advantage uh, penetrated, and so the reimbursement uh, for the hospitals in, in South Florida has really not been uh, adequate to cover uh, some of the costs associated with responding to this crisis. Yeah, we've heard that uh, complaint as well from Jackson Health System about how the hospital stimulus dollars, ha- the formula that's been used by the federal government. Can you share with us about how much Baptist has received and what you would like to see from the federal stimulus dollars? Um, no, I'm I'm not at liberty to share at this point about what we have received. The ideal situation uh, for us would be we would have minimal losses, you know, associated with this. We're just hopeful we're, we're going to get some additional support from the federal government, and you know, we continue to plateau. Plateau in terms of the number of new cases and number of COVID cases, and we can get back to normal. That was Baptist Health South Florida Chief Operating Officer Bo Bollinger speaking with us late last week. Still to come, managing an expanding health care provider through the coronavirus. Trying to still manage that same cost of, of care for your caregivers in the setting of decreased revenue is certainly a challenge. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for supporting public media. When drive through COVID-19 testing was first offered in Broward County, one of the first was at Cleveland Clinic, Florida in Weston. That was five weeks ago. On Saturday, Governor Ron DeSantis used the hospital for the backdrop for his daily update on the state of the virus. His visit came as he awaits recommendations from the task force he convened last week to make recommendations on how to reopen parts of Florida's economy. The governor's statewide stay-at-home order is due to expire on Thursday. The ban on elective surgeries at hospitals is scheduled to be lifted on May 9th. The ban has opened up hospital beds to handle any increase in demand from the virus. It has also led to a sharp drop in hospital revenues across the industry. On Saturday at Cleveland Clinic's hospital in Weston, the governor said in-person sporting events were not going to happen in May in Florida, and bars and movie theaters would remain closed in any Phase 1 reopening of the state. Phase 1 is a, is a very, very small step forward, and I think the prudent way to do it is to be very methodical about this, be very data-driven. Um, I'm not in a rush um, you know, to, 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 to do anything. I would rather do it right. 
but some return to elective surgeries at hospitals is on the table. My order, I think, goes to May 8th. Uh, so we're going to be looking this weekend about, about how we're going to do that. But, but I think certainly we're going to need to do that. Statewide, hospitals have lost an estimated half billion dollars by canceling surgeries and keeping beds available for COVID-19 patients. We spoke with Cleveland Clinic Florida CEO Dr. Whale Barsom last week before the governor's visit. Probably the biggest cost that we've seen has really been around several areas. The first is obviously in people. Uh, we have been working hard at cross-training uh, many of our caregivers. So even though our hospital volumes have been significantly decreased because we haven't been doing elective surgeries, for example, uh, we're still having folks uh, come in or at least work from home and, and cross-train to be able to do other things. So when we were really expecting a large surge in critical care patients, for example, we had many of our nurses uh, up training to be critical care nurses. Uh, although we've not been doing a lot of general surgery or orthopedic surgery, we've still had all of those surgeons training in how to manage ventilators under the supervision of a critical care doctor, for example. So our expenses have actually still remained quite high, even though our case volumes have dropped off dramatically. From a business perspective, it really is the uh, the absence of revenues for companies, and certainly hospitals are included in that because, as you mentioned, the elective surgery ban that's been in place because of the public health emergency has got to have hurt uh, that top line, the revenue number, right? Well, there's no doubt, and I can I can you know be pretty specific in in the month of March where we were kind of going gangbusters for the first couple of weeks, uh, we were doing fine. We ended up ending that month uh, uh, 11% uh, below uh, the same month last year in revenue. Uh, we're projecting April of 2020 will be 42% below April of 2019 in revenues. So, you know, what had historically been a mildly uh, uh, profitable, by, by profitable, I mean we're in the black when it comes to EBITDA hospital is now very much a hospital and a hospital system that is, at least for these months, is running in the red. Now, fortunately, we're a very strong hospital system with, you know, over 300 days cash on hand. So we're well equipped to manage this and to get through this. But without a doubt, it's a very real challenge. And I think one of the things, Tom, that, that I think you know is, you know, we've made a commitment here to all of our caregivers. We've not furloughed anybody. We've not taken away vacation time from folks. We've not given folks lack of work and we've not laid anybody off. So trying to still manage that same cost of, of care for your caregivers in the setting of decreased revenue is certainly a challenge. So how are you meeting that challenge of 42% drop year over year in April revenues, but your cost structure, I imagine it's probably not the same from a year ago, April. It's probably higher than a year ago, April. Uh, it's probably, you know, it's not higher. We've actually had some costs taken out. So things, for example, having visiting nurses coming in, which is pretty expensive when you're at capacity and above capacity and you have to bring in agency folks, uh, that's a cost that we've eliminated. Uh, we're not doing elective primary total hip and total knee replacements, so we're not buying those implants right now. So those are costs that are eliminated uh, for right now, uh, and that, that actually helps us in terms of our bottom line. EBITDA is the uh, financial term for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's an accounting look. 
uh, you know, uh, as a side note, doctor, I've heard some financial folks talk about earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization, and coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, as they look at their financials and the significant impact it's happened really across the board. Has this impacted Cleveland Clinic Florida's expansion plans, integration plans? It's now, um, you know, up into uh, Palm Beach County and uh, Martin and St. Lucie County, five hospitals and uh, more than 30 outpatient centers, all of those outside of Broward joining within the last year or so. Is is the financial constraints of Corona affecting any of those plans? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think if, if this were going to be um, uh, much longer lived, you know, when, by the, by that I mean, you know, it's several more months, I think we would really start having to, to be a lot more concerned. Do you support the lifting of the ban on elected surgeries before the end of April? You need to ensure that you can do point-of-care testing on patients when they come to the hospital, number one. Number two, we have to be confident that we are showing a decrease in the number of hospitalizations for coronavirus. And I think that we are seeing that in Florida, certainly in Southeast Florida. And because we have eliminated uh, the selective care for folks, we've actually seen an increase potentially in the number of folks that are having medical issues at home. Uh, I think that's important to, to our governor. I think it's important to uh, our political leaders in general. And they recognize that. And I think they are uh, very focused on getting healthcare systems open as quickly as possible to take care of folks that need that type of care. But what do you mean by uh, healthcare at home that uh, Floridians are not availing themselves of hospitals? Is this emergency cases or, or something perhaps less serious than yeah. you're talking about? So, so interestingly enough, there's a paper coming out that that's, uh, looks actually at the population in Cleveland and says that over the last five weeks, they've seen a decrease in 38% of patients coming in with, with uh, heart attacks, which obviously those are, I don't imagine that 38% fewer people have had heart attacks. It probably means that there are people that are sitting at home with mild chest pain that are afraid to come to the hospital or are not coming to the hospital. I can tell you that our volumes for uh, cardiac care uh, has also dropped off. So I suspect that the same thing is happening here in Southeast Florida. I think that this is an unintended consequence of trying to do the right thing and ensure that we have enough hospital beds available to treat coronavirus patients. Dr. Barson, when you talk about the conditions that you'd like to see met in order to uh, welcome back elective surgeries into the healthcare system in Florida, could you foresee that happening hospital to hospital or hospital system to hospital system? Or would you prefer it to either be an on-off switch? Either all hospitals are open for elective surgeries or none are. Every hospital in Florida ought to have the capacity to do point-of-care testing for patients that are having procedures. Otherwise, it puts caregivers at major risk. If we're operating on somebody and we're not sure whether or not they're positive for coronavirus, then you have to treat them as being positive, which means they're going to use an incredible amount of personal protective equipment that may not necessarily be needed if that patient were negative. The second comment I would make is that, you know, I think it's not limited only to hospitals. I think one of the big questions that we need to be asking are what are those same requirements uh, to open other businesses? Not necessarily because people, you know, have a driving need to go eat out at a restaurant 
or to uh, to go out and have a drink with friends, but because there are people that operate those restaurants and work in those restaurants that depend on a paycheck to be able to pay their rent, take care of their families. This is a, a, a question that is driven for many healthcare providers to ensure that we're being able to provide healthcare for patients that need it. But on a larger scale, it's also an important question for all of society to get society kind of ramped back up. And I think hospitals and healthcare providers have a very real role to play in that process. Speaking last week with Cleveland Clinic Florida CEO, Dr. Whale Barsom. Still to come, a personal story of money and the price of life in South Florida. I have no mortgage. I'm driving my 2010 Honda Pilot. My biggest expense is my overhead in my office, my staff salaries, really. That's next. This is the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. All season at this time, we have been bringing you financial statements, stories of money and the price of life in South Florida. And life has changed in so many ways and so fast for so many people. If you or someone you know would like to share their story, please email us, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. Today's story is from Dr. Jonathan Tuman. He's a dentist who does cosmetic work and works with special needs patients. His practice has been affected by the fight to slow the spread of coronavirus. He considers himself lucky, though, but thinks his business will change because of the virus. My name is uh, Jonathan Tuman. I'm a dentist. We live in Aventura. My office is over in uh, Bay Harbor Islands. Been practicing for 30 years. Been living in South Florida for about 47 years. This is where we call home and I make my living. actually was born in New York and lived there till the age of 10. My dad was a Chevrolet dealer up in New York and um, had some health issues and then decided to retire. He retired pretty early, obviously wanting to get out of the cold weather up in the Northeast in the rat race and came down here. You know, my dad retired. I don't ever remember, you know, seeing him not dressed in in a suit. Um, you know, I mean, even on weekends, you know, when it was casual, he always dressed nicely, and my mom too. And you know, when we came down here, it was a big adjustment because the lifestyle was obviously more laid back. It was hot, and it was more conducive to just you know wearing shorts and and sneakers and you know things that he just never did. And he really didn't have many hobbies. His hobby was his work. You know, that was his life. You know, so when I got out of high school, my background actually was electronics. That's what I studied in high school. Uh, I didn't really know what I, you know, wanted to do. Uh, Decided to go into the Army for two years. Um, I had some leave time. My folks were up in New York visiting. And so I said, listen, you know, I have have some time off. Why don't I come up and meet you guys? So I did. It was just coincidental that I needed some dental work. And so my uncle said, hey, you know, our family dentist is literally right down the street. You know, up in in the Northeast, a lot of uh, physicians and dentists have their offices in their home. 
And so uh, he says, listen, let me call Stan and, and so he'll, he'll take a look at you. So he did. And of course, Stan said, yeah, absolutely. Send him over. And um, he, he's an interesting guy. We still keep in touch. He's 96. He was my mentor. So, you know, I went into him and, you know, we were talking. He was working on me. We were talking. He said, well, what do you plan on doing with your life? And I said, you know, I, I really don't know. You know, my friends of mine from New York, uh, their dad was an electronics guy who fixed TVs. You know, back then they actually fixed televisions and stereos, you know, because, you know, TVs were expensive. Kind of the plan at that time was maybe to, you know, me and the two brothers kind of collaborate and take over his dad's business. That, that was kind of the game plan. And so, you know, I told Stan, the dentist, that, you know, that's what I was thinking about. And he said, well, you know, do you really think that that's something that could sustain you? I said, I don't know. And he just shot a question to me out of left field. He said, have you ever thought about a career in dentistry? And he had a nice house, you know, nice car, really, you know, he lived really nicely. He said, look, you know, if you can find your, your, you know, your way clear sometime, why don't you come in and hang out with me, see what I do? And I did. I took him up on it. I made the decision of wanting to go to dental school, I thought about maybe going back into the Army as a dentist. Because my dad was a business guy, and he said, listen, you know, you have a decision to make, you know, obviously I know the military wants doctors, they're willing to pay for schooling, whatever. Just keep in mind that, you know, I don't want to hear your mouth, you know, when you get out that, you know, you're only making X dollars a year and your colleagues from, you know, from school are making 10 times that amount. And, you know, it, it stuck in my mind. I really thought about just going to business for myself. And ultimately, you know, that's what I decided to do. So I practiced general dentistry for a number of years. I mean, it was fun. I was doing cosmetic dentistry just like everybody else. And, you know, healthcare professionals and professionals in general, uh, in order for, you know, uh, professionals to have their licenses renewed, um, you know, pretty much every state requires continuing education courses. For dentistry, it's 30 credits every two years. Nova Southeastern had just opened their school of dentistry here in, in uh, Davie. They sent around flyers to all the doctors. I received one in the mail, and it was uh, it was a course on treating the disabled. You know, it was a two-day course, and it was free, absolutely free, and it was worth 15 credits. And so I, I was like, wow, you know, I can get half my credits for free. You know, it's a pretty good deal. That was it. I had absolutely no uh, desire or, or thought about getting involved in special needs. Things just kind of happen, you, you know, there, there are just some certain things in life you can't plan. And then the next thing I know, a couple weeks later, I got a call from one of the coordinators from the waiver program and said, gee, I have a patient that I would like to send to your office. I said, okay, great. So they did. Very nice girl. She's still my patient today after all these years. Uh, higher functioning, special needs, 
and that was it. I said, gee, this is easy. And the, the remuneration was great. And so it just so happened that Mount Sinai uh, Hospital had a dental residency program. And so I was on staff there for a number of years teaching in the dental residency program. That was my, my segue into doing patients at the hospital. And basically, uh, that's, that's how it's been for, you know, 20 plus years. I kind of have two practices in one, a obviously special needs practice, and I also have a general dental practice. On that side of the house, uh, it's always been a sell. You know, you're always trying to sell uh, procedures, services, cosmetics, braces, bleachings, whatever. It was not difficult. The finance situation of people was very different for cosmetic uh, procedures. Anything that had a little, you know, vanity in it was easy to do. My special needs patients, I really didn't have to sell. You know, I was able to just go ahead, formulate a treatment plan, submit it to the state. They approved it and I did the work. I have no mortgage. I'm driving my 2010 Honda Pilot. My overhead, my personal overhead is very low. And, and really, that's it. My biggest expense is my, my overhead in my office. You know, my staff salaries, really. I did furlough my office manager because she's on, she's actually the only one who's on salary. Her job is in place. Uh, her health care benefits are still in place. I'm still paying for that. All my other girls are hourly. I am paying them in the meantime. However, I can tell you that there's going to be a big change in, um, in salaries and the way I do business because I have to. It's not because I want to be mean. It's because I need to, you know, stay solvent. It's as simple as that. On the private side of my business, I don't think patients are going to have the disposable kind of money to go ahead and do those cosmetic cases that they wanted to do. Maybe veneer cases or maybe, you know, uh, Invisalign clear braces. They may say, gee, you know what, I'm going to hold off because that, that treatment was going to be, you know, $5,000, $8,000. And right now I could use that money to funnel to something else. That's one thing that will definitely affect my business. The other thing is that on, on my special needs side is that many of my patients require hospital treatment. Um, and so I don't know now what the protocol is going to be at, at the hospital for allowing me to do cases there because they're really not emergent cases. They're really elective cases. So that, that's going to have an impact on my income. I think it's going to mean we're going to do less vacations. We love to travel and that's going to take a back seat for now until things, you know, get rolling again. And, you know, is it the end of the world? It certainly isn't. I think this downtime for many people is a good time to reflect uh, on the fact that you really don't need all these material things to keep you occupied and to, you know, live your life. dentist Jonathan Tooman. If you or someone you know want to share their story 
of Money and the Price of Life in South Florida in the age of coronavirus, please email us, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. That's sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Katie Lepre is our engagement editor. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.